Our text this afternoon is Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. It's a continuation from where we left off this morning. This morning we had Gabriel announcing the birth of John. Now Gabriel comes back and announces the birth of Jesus. Luke 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 13, stanzas 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we are going to talk about an embarrassing Topic: The virgin conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that because many, and I mean here many Christians, are embarrassed about the virgin birth. That's not to say that people in general are embarrassed about Jesus Christ. Christians like to talk about him. At Christmas, they talk about the babe lying in a manger. At Easter, they'll talk about his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and everything in between. Christians don't even have a problem talking about the miracles of Jesus, feeding 5,000 people with a couple of fish and loaves of bread, walking on water, healing, raising the dead, all fine. But when you come to the virgin birth, there's an unsettled feeling and an embarrassment. It's not because it's a new topic. It's well-grounded, not only in Scripture, but our confessions. We just read the Apostles' Creed. We confessed it. That's a document that's been functioning for 1,600 years in the Christian church everywhere. And we say very clearly, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The same thing with the Nicene Creed. We talk about that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, came down from heaven 
became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The church has always confessed this, said it loudly and clearly. Jesus Christ, Son of God, conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. And yet there's still something hesitant about it, and people are embarrassed. I think that the reason that the church is embarrassed by this is because there's so much ridicule in our world. Now, our our world has a fetish with things that are supernatural and surreal. They don't have a problem with the folklore of Jesus walking on water and feeding the 5,000. In our society, such a love affair with Star Wars and Back to the Future, what's the problem talking about a man who walked on water or who raised the dead? And yet the world stumbles. It hesitates and it abhors the idea of, of God himself coming down, entering the belly, the, the womb of a woman, and being there for nine months and taking her flesh and blood. That's crossing the line. I mean, that's okay for a horror flick, but for the gospel, this, this warm gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ, the world does not want to hear about it. And as a result, Christians tend to be embarrassed. I mean, ask yourself. You might talk to your neighbor about Jesus, born in Bethlehem stall, your Lord and Savior who died for your sins, but when's the last time you talked to somebody about the virgin conception and birth of Jesus? We don't talk about that easily at all, unless you're with somebody who's on exactly the same wavelength as we are. But there's too much at stake to be hesitant and to shut up about something as important as the virgin birth. The virgin birth is at the very heart and foundation of who Jesus is and what he came to do. If there's no virgin birth, there's no Jesus. No virgin birth, no salvation. That's why if if I were to be talking with someone who says, I'm a Christian, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and then that person says, but I do not believe in the virgin birth, then I say that we don't share the same faith. We're not in the same place. John, in his first epistle, talks about Jesus Christ coming into the world as the Son of God. He talks about testing the spirits. And he says in chapter 4, this is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. How you think and believe about the virgin birth says everything about how you feel about Jesus Christ. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Then we are standing at the crossroad of time and eternity. We are at the point where the hopes and fears of all the years are met. We are at a moment when it has to be clear in your own mind what you believe and what you understand about the virgin conception and birth of our Savior. 
We'll look at that this afternoon under this theme. The angel Gabriel announces to the Virgin Mary the birth of Jesus. And we will see chosen mother, unique son, and real faith. Now, no one would ever try to suggest that the virgin birth is anything less than a miracle. Virgins do not spontaneously conceive all by themselves. A man is always needed for that. For a girl, to, a woman to be pregnant requires a man. Even in modern science and technology, you know, with in vitro fertilization, for instance, a man is needed. Even in cloning, if a woman were to be cloned, she could only have, be another woman, not a man. The normal way of having a child, certainly for a woman to have a son, that requires a man. So when we talk about a virgin birth, we're talking about an absolute miracle. Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says that Jesus appearing in the flesh is the great mystery of our religion. Now, mystery is not a secret. Secrets you, you know nothing about. But a mystery is something that God reveals, but it's so deep that there's no way that you can fully comprehend it. Some of the things of God are so deep, you can't quite reach its full foundation and understanding. That's certainly true of the virgin birth. Not just that a virgin can conceive, but in this particular case, that she can conceive a child that's her flesh and blood, but also the eternal Son of God. And then not, not half man, half God, but 100% man and 100% God. Her own flesh and blood, but also the eternal Son of God. We are standing here, you know, at the very edge of human comprehension. And we stand in awe of the distance that God went to secure our salvation. We read in our text that in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name, was Mary. Now, this morning, we looked at the passage immediately preceding our text, where Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and said, Elizabeth is going to get pregnant. You'll have a son. You'll name him John. He will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ to get people to know and to believe in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. That we read in verse 24, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Five months in seclusion. And therefore, when we read in our text that Gabriel came to Mary in the sixth month, that means that Mary has known for a couple of weeks, month maximum, that her friend and her relative, who was old, who was barren, is now pregnant. Mary knew that God had done a miracle for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was pregnant. And it was dawning on a person like Mary, together with Zechariah and Elizabeth, strange things were happening in Israel. Things like this hadn't happened in centuries. For hundreds of years, Israel had walked in darkness and not seen the light or the dawn of a new day. 
but the times, they were a-changing. Mary, her fiancé Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zachariah were seeing that the hand of God was stirring things up. A new day was dawning, and Mary wondered what would happen next. Well, within a month of learning that Elizabeth was pregnant, the Lord sends Gabriel, his angel, to Mary, a virgin, in Nazareth of Galilee. Now Luke, he knew that, that Nazareth was such a little hick town that a lot of his readers wouldn't know where it is, so he adds, this, this is in Galilee, by the way. A picture emerges here. What is Nazareth? Hick town. What is Galilee? Backwaters place. Who is Mary? Nobody. There's nobody of power or influence or glory. This is not Jerusalem with the high priest. It's Nazareth with, with a girl. And, and you begin to see that God does not use the rich and the powerful and influential of this world for the dawn of a new day. But it's his power and his grace. God uses what is insignificant to bring about salvation of his people so that his people say it is by the power and the grace of God alone that we are saved. So far, it's sounding like a remarkable story, but more is about to unfold. Luke informs us that the angel Gabriel is sent to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, the word in Greek for virgin, parthenos, doesn't literally mean the same thing as virgin in the English language. Literally, it means in Greek, a young woman of marrying age. The implication or the suggestion is that she's a virgin, but that's not necessarily true. Although in this case, Mary herself, later in our text, makes absolutely clear she is a virgin. Now, the culture of that time tells us that Mary was probably not very old. At that time, girls typically became engaged at 12 years of age. You know, I think of my catechism classes. Girls and boys start to come to catechism at around the age 12. Think of one of those young girls coming into catechism class, engaged to be married. An engagement at that time was a, was a legal binding contract. It, for sure marriage was coming. You don't have sexual intercourse yet, but you're going to marry that man that you're engaged to. And when she would be around 13, she would be taken to her bridegroom's home and stay with him. They would become husband and wife. You know, so the idea that we might have that, that Mary may have been a woman of 25, 35 years old, not very likely. Is much more likely, going by the culture of that time, she was a teenager, and perhaps a very young teenager at that. Now, whom she's engaged to is also very striking. We read that it's a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, that's so important because there are so many prophecies and promises in the Old Testament that make clear the Savior is to be a son of David, come from David's line, and reestablish in a far more glorious way the kingdom of David. Now David said in Psalm 110, which we sang together, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now we, re- we sing that all the time. 
But you've got to listen to David. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. There's two lords here. Two gods. Well, one God, but two persons. The Lord says, that's the Lord God Almighty, Heavenly Father, says David. The Lord says to my Lord, my son, my son is my Lord and my God and my Savior. High priest in the order of Melchizedek. The king who will establish an everlasting kingdom. David knew, also based on the promises of 2 Samuel 7, that one day from his line would come a son who would establish a kingdom that would cover the earth, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And that king from his line would also be the son of God. Later on in the Emmanuel passages of chapter 7 through 11, We read there about a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. It comes to kind of a climax in chapter 11, verse 1, where we read, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now Jesse is the father of David. What Isaiah is saying is that David and his kingdom will rot and decay, and become nothing. A day is coming, there'll be no Davidic king here in Jerusalem. After the exile, there never was again. Virtually disappeared. Be reduced to a smoldering stump. But one day, when you're least expecting it, a shoot will come out, a branch bearing fruit, the son of David, the Emmanuel, and he will establish a kingdom, a kingdom of peace and of righteousness. So when our text says that the man she's engaged to, Joseph, a descendant of David, that's drawing on all those Old Testament promises and prophecies. And you might say, so what? What does it really matter whether all those prophecies are fulfilled or not? But it's important that we realize that, that our God is a faithful God who's true to his word. From the beginning when man fell into sin, he said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And you follow all God's promises through the Bible. It is a thread that goes in every direction, but it always comes together. God's promise is always the one is coming. Seed of the woman, of the line of David, he'll be your savior. And see that all unfolding here in our text reminds us we have a faithful God who delivers. If he says, I love you, and I save you, you know that's absolutely the truth. Very significant that Mary is engaged to Joseph. But as the text unfolds, we we realize that, that Joseph does not become the physical father of Jesus. Mary conceives by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That's a virgin birth. So we say, well, how can Jesus be the legal descendant of David if Joseph is not his physical father? You know, only only we could think that way. If you could go back two, two three thousand years and try to say that to a Jew, they'd scratch their head. So we don't get your point. You see, in the Old Testament times, for a Jew, whether a child was born from you or you adopted a child made no difference. They didn't see the difference. 
If it's your legal child, either born to you or adopted, that's your child, that's your legal heir, that's all that counts. And everybody understood it at that time. Joseph was the legal father of Jesus. And that meant Jesus was the legal heir of David. This was the descendant of David. This is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. No wonder we read in our text, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, there's nothing in our text to suggest that Mary is better or more worthy than other women. What the Lord is saying to you is, I have chosen you. Among all women, I have chosen you to have a miraculous conception, to have a child that's your flesh and blood, but that that child born to you, you can also say, this is my eternal God. The journey for Mary would not always be an easy one. Yes, she had that joyful moment that when she held that baby in her hands and kissed him, she knew she was kissing the face of God. But she would also stand at the cross of Golgotha, seeing her naked, bleeding, humiliated, crucified son dying. No mother should have to see that. No mother should have to see her son die in such a horrible way. And yet she had to. Because Mary was a sinner too. And she needed her own son to hang on a cross to pay for her sins that she might be with her son forever in a new heaven and new earth as a child of God. That brings us to our second point. I think you can all appreciate that we read in verse 29 that Mary was troubled and confused at the angel's greeting. Not just because of what the angel said, but as we saw this morning with Zechariah, to, to meet an angel ultimately meant to meet God. And it's a dangerous thing for a a sinner to be that close to a holy God. You are in danger of dying. But the angel quickly reassures Mary. He says, "Don't, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. And then he explains in verses 31 through 33, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, the fact that Mary would get pregnant and have a child in and of itself, that's not that unusual. But the unusual things about it quickly unfold. In the first place, the angel says, God has named your child. You would call him Jesus. We saw that. We also read that in Matthew 1. God chose the name Jesus because that was God's prediction and promise and guarantee that this child, whose name means the Lord is salvation, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is our Savior. Then Gabriel adds that he will be called Son of the Most High, which is just another way of saying he will be called Son of God, and he will be descendant of David. And we already touched on that. To be a descendant of David means that this is that son of David who will take the rotting, disintegrating kingdom of sin and raise it up. And through his blood and through his spirit, establish an everlasting kingdom. Not just in a new world, the new heavens and new earth, but in this world. Through Pentecost 
He would make his kingdom through the word spread over the face of the whole earth. People from every nationality, people of every color, people of every walk of life will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, washed in his blood, born again by the power of the Spirit, and able to live to the praise and the glory of God. Now, you begin to wonder how much Mary would have understood about all this. How do you glean from the Old Testament that one day a a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son who is the Son of God and Son of David? Mary had something at her disposal which the church has lost for almost 2,000 years. And it's within the last century that we have discovered information available to our brothers and sisters at that time. Between the ending of the Old Testament, the 5th century B.C., and the appearing of the angel to Joseph and to Mary and to Zechariah, between that you have the intertestamental period. You have the writing there of the Jewish Apocrypha and the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the past century. Now these are not the word of God, but reading the Dead Sea Scrolls today, we discover what the Jews were learning and understanding just before the coming of Jesus Christ. And what we learn there is that the Jews figured out from the Old Testament the real significance of Emmanuel, that their Savior is not just the seed of the woman, but is the Son of God himself. Mary was living in a, in a religious climate, in a world where it was being taught the coming Savior is God himself. So she understood full well some of the implications of what the angel Gabriel was saying to her. And of course, we know from our confessions, like the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 5 and 6, that our Savior has to be man and God. He has to be man because man sinned and has to pay for sin. But our Savior also has to be God because only God can bear the burden of God's wrath against sin and be able to deliver others. But Mary has a question. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, in Greek she says, how will this be because I do not know a man? And I think you know what that biblical expression means. She says, how can I be pregnant when I've never had sexual intercourse with a man? Not even my fiancé, Joseph. Now, she wasn't doubting the angel. We don't get the same impression and message that what Zachariah did and was wrong, Mary was now doing. She just didn't understand. She's asking for an explanation. How does a virgin get pregnant Without a man. How? That's the question that, that the angel answers in verse 35. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Now the two expressions, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, those are parallel statements. Basically mean the same thing. It's saying it's the Holy Spirit who's going to do the miracle. That all-powerful Spirit is going to perform a miracle in your womb, Mary. And we know who the Spirit is. Think of Genesis 1, verse 2, just as God was starting to create. We read, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
And then John 3, verse 5, Jesus said to Nicodemus, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Those two texts, we learn that the Holy Spirit, the powerful Holy Spirit, He created the world and He recreates it. He created man as the image of God and He recreates man as the image of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that powerful Holy Spirit who creates the world, who renews the life of a man, is also the one who will go into the womb of Mary and perform a miracle there, which requires no human intervention, no man. He will perform a miracle that will allow Mary to conceive. A child will begin to form in her womb. And because the Holy Spirit does that, the angel says, so the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. What the angel is saying is, Mary, that that baby in your womb, that's, that's going to be your flesh and blood, may even look like you. In today's terms, we would say that that baby will have your DNA. It's your flesh and blood. But because Joseph is not involved... Because the Holy Spirit makes you conceive that child is not only the Son of Man, but that child will also be the Son of God. The Son of God is going to come into your womb by the power of the Holy Spirit and be there for nine months so that the child to be born is your son, son of David through Joseph, and son of God Almighty, eternal God. He will be the one who is now able, able, willing to take the sins of the world on himself and to die for sinners. You begin to realize, brothers and sisters, that when we talk about the virgin birth here, we say this is a miracle that you should not ignore or deny. And yet, the virgin conception of birth is not the be-all and end-all. The virgin birth is not our full religion and is not our salvation. It is the stepping stone that God uses, a glorious miracle to bring his son into the world to die for us. There's a message in that for us today. When we realize the, the complexity of what it requires to save a sinner, what it takes for any one of you, any one of us, to come out of darkness and into light is for God himself to become one of us and to die for us. One thing I know, I can do nothing for my salvation. Absolutely nothing. We rely here on the power of God, on the grace of God, and His love. You know, when we stand here at Christmas time, it's a lot of time for good cheer and merriment. Tell the sweet stories of the baby Jesus. Give presents, sing beautiful hymns. But it is a sober moment. The time to contemplate. A a moment to say, you know, if God did not step in with his miracle of power and grace, where would I be? What would I be? Nothing. Nothing at all. How great is our God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for sinners. 
We see in our final point that the angel Gabriel reassures Mary that God can do this. He reminds Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. You get the message, right? God can do anything, and he will. Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, in some religions, a lot is made of how Mary responds to Gabriel and to God. You know, within the Roman Catholic Church, it is said that Mary is co-redeemer with Jesus. Jesus is my redeemer. Mary is my redeemer. She's my co-redeemer. Without her, and without her assent, nothing could happen. The teaching is that when Gabriel came to Mary and said, Mary, you are to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, then Gabriel was silent. And heaven was silent. No angel stirred. The breath of God was held. What would Mary say? Would she agree? Would she cooperate? Because if she doesn't, doesn't, then God's plans can't be fulfilled. But there's nothing in our text that suggests that or says that. Gabriel doesn't say, Mary, will you do this? He says, Mary, this is what's going to happen to you. Mary asks for clarification how a virgin can have a child, and clarification is given. But Mary does not challenge. She doesn't give assent in the sense that it's up to her whether it's going to happen or not. She's told that she will be an instrument in the hand of God for our Savior to be here. Mary needed him just as much as we need Jesus Christ. She's a sinner. She also had to stand there at the cross of Golgotha and see there the love of God as her own son piteously cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, Mary really didn't understand everything when she stood there at the foot of the cross. But later on, she would understand after Pentecost. And I'm sure that not a a day went by in the life of Mary that in her mind she didn't go back there to the cross and see her son, her Lord and her God, and say, you died for me. Thank you. I love you, my Lord Jesus. We have made clear that the work of redemption does not hang in the balance of Mary's decision. Everything hangs in the balance of God's justice and grace. At the same time, we have here a wonderful example of faith in the Virgin Mary. Just a girl. Just a a young teenager. But together with her fiancé Joseph, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, waiting for the dawn of a new day, sure that it was coming, sensing that the times were changing, all she needed was a ray of light. She grabbed it. She rode with it. She was taken into the dawn of a new day. There is salvation. God is good to us. In her song, at the end of this chapter, she says, 
His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. You could say that's Mary's way of saying to us today, Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters, in the real old sense of the word. Merry Christmas, if you understand and believe that Jesus Christ is the child conceived in the womb of a virgin to be true man and true God, a gift of grace for our salvation. Amen.